Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. With me again, Matthew. Hello. My buddy. How are things, Matthew? Eventful. Eventful is eventful. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> One must keep moving forward, I guess. <laughs> you sound like my grandmother. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I probably look like your grandma, too. I uh, started sure. to look like an old lady. Her mustache didn't have gray in it. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. And we know just how dark it can get. Pretty darn dark. Mm-hmm. on a cold morning on January 7, 1922, two Montreal City Public Works Department employees on their way to their work shed discovered the body of a man laying on the frozen ground near the corners of Coolbrook and Snowden Street. The man who'd been shot was later identified by a Catholic priest named Adelard Delorme as his half-brother, Raoul. When police investigated, they were surprised that their evidence pointed to one very unusual suspect— this case would become important not only for the oddity of its perpetrator and the groundbreaking forensic used to break the case, but also its shocking outcome. This is Dark Poutine episode 183, Sins of the Father, The Delorme Affair. I realize that there have been a few Quebec cases of late, but up until this point in the show, we have been lacking in stories from La Belle Provence. This is me trying to make up for that, as we've bypassed a lot of interesting tales. Many of the facts, in this case, come from a short book titled My Version of the Delorme Case, written by the man charged with investigating this case, a Montreal police detective named Georges Ferrat Lajoie. On Monday, January 9, 1922, looking very much like Hercule Poirot of the Agatha Christie stories, the spectacularly mustachioed and experienced Georges Lajoie was summoned into Police Chief Lepage's office for an important meeting. Lajoie assumed he was being called in to discuss another murder case he was also working hard to solve. 
Two other officers were already in Lepage's office when Detective Lejoie walked in. Lepage said to the detective, Lejoie, a most atrocious and mysterious murder has just been committed in this city. Leave all other work and give all your time and energy to this matter. I have in you now, as in the past, entire confidence. The honor of our city, and particularly of our department, rests on the discovery of the murderer. I give you carte blanche in every way. And he added, Your friends here will give you all the details which are known up to now in this matter. After leaving the chief's office, the two other officers filled La Joie in with the details of the case. First, they went to the crime scene for a look, so La Joie could get a lay of the land. The spot where the public works department employees had found the body was unremarkable. The shed nearby was full of public works tools, was locked up tight, and did not appear that anyone had tried to break in. There was no blood where the man had been laying or anywhere else. There were no tire tracks, carriage tracks, or footprints. The neighbors had not seen or heard a thing out of the ordinary. Le Joie was frustrated that the man's body had been taken away before he'd been called, but it had been two days after all. It was not customary, even in those days, to leave a body out in the cold for that long. He had to rely on the memories and notes of his colleagues. Their descriptions of what they found left Le Joie scratching his head. From Le Joie's book, I learned that the body was lying on its back with its feet pointing toward the shed. The two skirts of the victim's overcoat had been pulled up so that they swathed his head and they were fastened by means of a dozen pins or so. The knees were crossed, the right knee being over the left and slightly bent. The hands were tied together with a little string and about 12 inches one from the other. The victim wore no rubbers and the body was visibly frozen through and through. End quote. There had also been two quilted bed covers pinned around the deceased man's head. The killer had spent some time with the body post-mortem. The body had not melted the ice beneath it, so Le Joie felt that the corpse had been placed here some hours after his death. What are your thoughts on the way this body is discovered and, and what... It, it's totally bizarre. I'm just thinking of like somebody wrapping my head with my great-grandmother's quilts. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you think he do you think it was done to stop like to cover the bleeding or something? Um like why it, would you, it might have been why would you wrap it like that? To stop there, blood it, maybe? I think perhaps it was twofold. Yeah. It might indicate a lot of times uh in what I've read as far as forensic psychology goes, um a face will be covered up after a crime because of the guilt of the perpetrator. Right. They will wrap um, or put a blanket over or those kind of things. And it, the elaborate uh, way that this person went about that, mm. it seems as though he or she felt very, very disturbed by what they had just done. Mm. So much so they felt the need to... Completely like stitch it up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I, I've told the story before, but when the man attacked me when I was a little kid, I was wearing this red windbreaker mm -hmm. and that red windbreaker became a symbol to me of that event. Okay. And I shoved it away in the coat closet, in the cabinet oh. above the coat closet, because I didn't want to look at it anymore. Okay. So I think that perhaps the 
perpetrator, the murderer, whoever killed this person was wanting to psychologically distance themselves from what had just happened. You know when you've done something horrible? Uh, yeah, I know when and, I've done something horrible. <laughs> and you just want the next morning to break because you want to be a day away from it. Have right. you ever felt that way? I have felt that way yeah, so numerous I, times. I've, and a few times in my life, I'm, I'm just like, when it was a horrible day, I'm just like, I just... I want to go to sleep and I want a different day to happen. Yeah. It's sort of the same thing, right? You That, that psych, psychological distancing from an event, mm -hmm. right? And the wrapping is something similar. Yeah. yeah, I saw that as well. Police think, you know, if the person's covered, then like if it was just a stranger murder, mm -hmm. they're not covered. But if it's somebody that knows them, yeah. covered up because there's a sense of guilt. Yes. And okay. they have, it also indicates, like you just sort of alluded to, a relationship with the victim. Why would he be wearing rubbers? Not not wearing rubbers. What what, what does that condom have to do with anything? They're like galoshes, Matthew. Oh, galoshes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> Lejoie determined that the evidence to that point, especially the things that were missing, could lead to only one conclusion. The lack of blood anywhere other than on the dead man, his clothing, and the bed sheets in which his head was wrapped, the fact that there were no signs of a struggle, the absence of tracks of any kind, the fact he was not wearing galoshes, and the complex trussing up of the body with the string and quilted materials indicated that the young man's death had taken place elsewhere, most likely indoors. After going over the crime scene, it was off to the morgue where doctors were performing an autopsy on the yet unidentified dead man. The doctors present had carefully removed the pins and string holding the material together that was obscuring the dead man's head. The man's shirt, overcoat, and the top of his underwear were soaked in blood. There were also bullet holes in some of the items of clothing, in particular on the shirt's removable collar and the coat. Powder burns indicated a point-blank execution of the young man. The body showed no signs of poisoning or recent alcohol use. The man's death, the doctor indicated, was from hemorrhaging caused by six gunshot wounds to the man's head and neck. The bullets were still lodged within the man's body, and the doctors carefully extracted them. Speaking of the autopsy process and location of the bullets, Lejoie wrote, He has succeeded in extracting two bullets, which were in the chin and the jawbone. One was fired point-blank a little below the right temple, where the traces of gunpowder can still be perceived. Four others were shot at the chin on the right side and the sixth, as shown by the collar, would have been shot point-blank in the neck where it has severed one of the veins near the larynx. The bullets were examined and appeared to have been fired from the same firearm, presumably a revolver owing to the number of bullets in their caliber. The shots had been fired from above. It was presumed that the killer stood over the body for a number of the shots and leaned in closer for the point-blank ones. So, thoughts on that, Matthew? They really wanted him dead. Yeah. That's overkill. It six, definitely six is. Six times in the head? Jesus. Yeah. You only have to really shoot somebody in the head point blank once. Yeah. To get times. the job done. Yeah. So this person really, really wanted that individual dead. I agree. Is that a crime of passion? Um. Well, a crime of passion is kind of a little different because... It's like a, it's just in the, mid, in the middle of it all, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, say someone 
shoots your friend yeah. right in front of you. And you're just like, well, he just shot my friend, so I'm going to shoot him. Yeah. Pick up the gun and shoot the guy in the moment. That's yeah. kind of a crime of passion. Okay. But there was a lot of passion in it, Yeah, I do believe, or a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, maybe a lot of resentment. Mm. Shoot once, and it's like it didn't quite... It didn't quite get out the amount of rage that this person felt against yeah. the other individual. Yeah. There were no signs of struggle or fight, and no defensive wounds on the victim's body. It appeared as though the hands being tied together was post-mortem and used to make the body easier to carry, more indication that the man's killer had moved the body after the deed. Among the items found in the man's pockets were some personal papers. One had a name and address. Raoul Delorme, 190 St. Hubert Street, Montreal. Lejoie's colleagues had already been over to the address to see if anyone there knew Raoul or if he was missing. The officers had rung the bell at 190 St. Hubert Street and the door was answered by a man wearing a Catholic priest's collar and Cossack. The officers identified themselves and asked the man if Raoul Delorme lived there, and the priest said he did indeed. The priest identified himself as Father Adelard Delorme, Raoul's brother. Father Delorme asked, Has anything happened to him? He did not sleep at home last night. Could he be in a tight fix? The officers informed Father Delorme that a man, believed to be Raoul, had been found dead and required identification at the morgue. Father Delorme had agreed to come and see if it was Raoul, and the trio made their way to the morgue minutes later. At the morgue, Delorme identified Raoul and his belongings. One of the officers present later told Lejoie, This being done, the priest looked away from the body, which he blessed rapidly with an upraised hand, and then went out without showing the least emotion. Lejoie wrote, Were I a psychologist, I could draw here an interesting picture— this indifference in front of a dead body, this calm, this dispassionate behavior, what did they hide? Le Joie went to 190 St. Hubert Street himself to interview Father Delorme further and take a look around the home. Le Joie wrote, quote, The Abbey Delorme seemed to me quite a charming personality. About 35 years old, strong and of average height, his hair is brown and his complexion fresh. He gave in many ways all the appearances of authority and domination, and one could see that he was both father and master in his house. A shaded and low brow showed a piercing and penetrating glance. He gesticulates much with the left hand. Lejoie noticed why. Delorme seemed to be hiding his right hand in his sleeve. At one point, the priest's hand made an appearance, and the detective noted a dark red mark on Father Delorme's wrist. Lejoie asked Father Delorme how he'd injured himself. Delorme said, I fell on the ice last Saturday on my way to the assistance publique where I celebrated Mass at 7 o'clock. My wrist was sprained and Miss Morakaby, the prefect, advised me to paint it with iodine. Father Delorme told Lejoie that his brother had no enemies he was aware of and only a few friends, but none were really close to Raoul. He said that he had no idea why anyone would want to hurt or kill Raoul. Raoul, Father Delorme said, had gone out at around 3 p.m. on the night he'd failed to come home. The priest said that his 24-year-old brother was on his way to watch a show at the Princess Theatre. 
According to the priest, Raoul had called him exactly at 7 p.m., saying he'd met two friends who he failed to name in his travels and would be spending the evening with them. That, Father Delorme said, was the last time he'd heard from Raoul. Father Delorme said that nothing had seemed off with Raoul. He'd come home on December 22nd from university for the holidays. Raoul would sleep late and rarely went out. Raoul was in good spirits and due to return to school in the morning he'd been found dead. Delorme said he'd given Raoul $20, around $300 in today's economy, before he'd left the afternoon before he was discovered. The money had not been with Raoul. Lejoie looked around the large house with Delorme, giving him the grand tour. In Raoul's room on the second floor, his bag for his trip back to school in Ottawa was packed and ready to go. While they were in the garage looking at Father Delorme's car, a custom-built Franklin sedan, Lejoie asked Father Delorme if there were any firearms in the house. Yes, Delorme answered. I have a revolver since my father's death. All my friends know about it. I keep it in the car for I think it to be a wise measure of self-protection when I travel or when I call on sick during the night, end quote. Father Delorme did not offer to let Lejoie see the gun. The detective had to insist on it. Delorme pointed to a pocket inside the front left of the car, telling the detective that the pistol was in there. Lejoie retrieved the revolver, a 25-gauge 6.35mm Bayard automatic, and a box of cartridges, and put them into his own pocket. As soon as Lejoie put the gun into his pocket, the priest said, quote, I have tenants who live above the garage and others who live next door. If anything unusual had taken place, the neighbors would have noticed it, end quote. Lejoie asked to look downstairs at the clothes rack and shoes by the door. From Lejoie's book, quote, I found a pair of new rubbers and an old pair of the same size. These I asked the Abbey whether they were his or Raoul's. As he hesitated, I told him to try them on. He did so immediately, and I can say that the old pair of rubbers were not his, as he experienced much difficulty in putting them on. It is well known that old rubbers slip on easily, the body wore no rubbers, so they might prove useful to the case. The father seemed uneasy as Lejoie grabbed the rubbers and asked why the detective thought he needed them. Lejoie was cagey and vague with his answer, but in his mind he was well aware that these could be significant, as Raoul had been found without rubbers on his oddly clean shoes, which was extremely unusual for that time of the year, and meant he may not have walked there. If these were indeed Raoul's and the only pair he owned, they might help to prove the location of the younger man's murder. It was found later that the rubbers did in fact match the shoes that Raoul had been wearing when his body was discovered. Lejoie and his comrades spent the next couple of days around the neighborhood near the Princess Theatre showing people Raoul's photo given to them by Father Delorme. No one claimed to have seen Raoul on the night of his disappearance and murder. Not one person was able to shed any light on Raoul's movements that evening. A coronial inquest was quickly held at which the primary witness was Father Adelard Delorme, giving the inquest a family history and more information about young Raoul to attempt to determine why someone would want to kill the young man. Father Delorme was head to toe what one might expect a Catholic priest to look like. According to John Glatt's book, For I Have Sinned, quote, Delorme's ever-present black cassock and prayer book gave an air of piety and dignity to the handsome Catholic priest, making him appear older than his mid-thirties. Staring imperiously through an expensive pair of rimless pince-nez, his verbosity, combined with a colorful use of language, 
inspired respect from his Montreal parishioners. The Delorme family was well-off and known citywide and had a long history as respected contractors. Father Delorme and Raoul's father, Alfred, had passed away a couple of years before. Although Father Delorme was older, Alfred willed the bulk of his estate over $160,000, around $2.5 million Canadian dollars in today's economy, to Raoul. It was made up of mostly income-earning properties around the city. Five others, Father Adelard Delorme and his four sisters, shared in the inheritance, receiving much smaller shares than Raoul, Alfred's son by his second marriage and Father Delorme's half-brother. In the will, Father Delorme was tasked with managing Raoul's share of the inheritance until he came of age, which would have been soon. This had given Raoul, attending university in Ottawa, an income of a whopping $10,000, around $150,000 per year, which is a pretty decent chunk of cash for a student. Through his investigation, Lajoie discovered that Father Adelard Delorme was an interesting character, to say the least. Rather than follow along and join the family business, instead he felt a higher calling and went to St. Therese, a college on the northwest edge of Montreal, to study theology on his way to becoming a priest. Right away he stood out at school. From the book, For I Have Sinned, the conservative young man's almost fetish-like enjoyment of the sacraments of Holy Communion marked him as an eccentric figure among his clerical classmates, whom he in turn shunned. Ever theatrical, the young Delorme, who had a lifelong addiction to mint candy, would spend his free time strolling along the school balcony with a Bible, delivering imaginary sermons to himself. End quote. So he's an odd duck. Quack. <laughs> Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. He, he, it seems like he's in it for the... It's like it feeds his ego somehow. Yeah. 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 He doesn't sound like priests that I know. No. No. No, not, not, well, people who are truly practicing versus people who are in it for their own gain. Yeah, like I have a friend, Nancy, she's like a minister. Mm-hmm. And I've known her since we went to, like, summer camp. Yep. Camp Kimo Key. Oh, yeah. And she's one of these people that is, like, she's an embodiment of love. Like, you can tell, like, when she's ministering, mm -hmm. it, there's, like, the passion and the reality and the caring. Yeah. This guy seems like he's a little bit, like, it's the, the power thing for him. It's more yeah. about Father Delorme than it is about yeah. his flock. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Weird or not... Delorme had distinguished himself with the faculty at school and was asked to join them after his ordination. For the next ten years, Monsieur Labbé Delorme worked at St. Thérèse and did an admirable job, but there was talk that Delorme was doing things outside the school that were not exactly priest-like. It isn't clear whether Delorme had taken a vow of poverty, not all Catholic priests do, but if he had, gambling is outside that, and Delorme was doing that, and a lot of it. His innocent, pious look was apparently a ruse as well. Father Delorme also had another weakness. This one was against the vow that all priests take, the vow of celibacy. He enjoyed the company of a number of women. And we will take a break right here. And we're back. 
What are your thoughts so far, Matthew, on Father Delorme? We've already sort of had a little discussion saying yeah. we think Father Delorme is more about Father Delorme's gains than anybody else's. Yeah, but. yeah. The gambling, womanizing, mm-hmm. and... Spending money that's not his. And probably murdering. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's where we're getting here. Yeah, that's where we're headed. It's, uh, it's crazy. You know, it's funny. There's a time in history where nobody would imagine that a priest would be like this. Yeah. But with the history and what we've learned over the last number of years with the problems, not all priests are child rapists, mass murderers or whatever, Mm -hmm. but there's been a big issue and the reality is set in like that these are human beings. They seem to have found a venue in which they are comfortable, people who are like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's just such an abusive position. La Joie began to fill in the blanks, many of which were bits of the story conveniently left out by Father Adelard Delorme during his interviews. Montreal definitely had its seedier side, especially in the era this story takes place, from John Glatt's book, For I Have Sinned. Quote, Since the introduction of prohibition in the U.S. after World War I, the Port of Montreal had become the sin-drenched playground of the Northeast. Each weekend, thousands of thrill-seekers would arrive on special train outings from New York, Boston, and Chicago to enjoy the wild pleasures of Montreal's St. Lawrence Street area, where drink flowed freely at the many all-night gambling clubs. To round off the evening, the hedonists would visit the thriving Red Light District to sample the exotic wares of the Parisian-style brothels. The young Catholic priest was a regular at the St. Lawrence Street establishments where he was known to throw his money around. Indeed, Father Delorme's taste for the good life belied his vow of poverty and well exceeded the generous allowance he received from his father, who was constantly having to bail him out of trouble, end quote. To say Father Adelard's behavior was disappointing to his father, Alfred, was an understatement. Alfred was so disgusted with his eldest son that he'd effectively written him out of his will, leaving everything to Raoul at one point. As he became ill and approached death, Alfred changed his will, advised to do so by a friend, still leaving the bulk of the money to Raoul, but a small amount to Adelard, providing the priest act as money manager for Raoul's inheritance, as mentioned above, until the younger Delorme brother turned 25. Adelard was emotionless at his father's funeral, already having learned of his limited inheritance. He was seething, especially as he had to take care of Raoul's money. It was an insult to an unforgivable injury perpetrated, the priest thought, by his father on his deathbed. Adelard had later been the one who'd encouraged Raoul to go to university in Ottawa. The priest had told his brother that further education would help Raoul make the right financial decisions with his inheritance later on. Raoul, oblivious to Adelard's hatred of him, loved his older brother and took his counsel. The real reason Adelard wanted Raoul out of the city was to have him out of the way so he could spend his money, which the priest did with gusto. As Raoul's 25th birthday approached, Adelard resented his brother more and more and began thinking about ways to get his hands on his brother's cash, money he felt belonged to him. Adelard thought his dark prayers had been answered in 1921 when Raoul became very sick with appendicitis. An emergency appendectomy had to be performed, and for a time, things looked bleak for young Raoul, but he pulled through the procedure with flying colors. 
Adelard was downcast. There had to be another way. He began to ponder darker options. Raoul was buried on January 11, 1922, five days after the discovery of his body. The funeral was held downtown in Montreal at St. James Church with Father Adelard Delorme saying the Requiem Mass for his murdered brother. He'd suggested to La Joie that the police be mixed into the crowd in case the murderer showed up. According to true crime author Max Haynes, only days after burying his brother, Delorme announced a $10,000 reward for the capture and conviction of Raoul's killer, stating that he felt the killer should be publicly executed at a local skating rink. Haynes also points out this sentiment was not very becoming of a man of the cloth. <laughs> oh my God, I'm more priestly than this guy is. Right, more Jason Priestley? Yeah, I'm more Jason Priestley than this guy is. Right, it's crazy, like... A priest calling for, like, a public execution in a skating rink. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I don't think I've ever heard of anything more ridiculous or anything less Christian. No. Right? It's horrible. Lejoie had considered many options and motives in trying to solve Raoul Delorme's murder. He looked at everything from robbery, revenge for some yet unknown slight, rivalry over a love, and even whether Raoul had been involved in spying. But none of that seemed to go anywhere. He even considered Raoul had been the victim of an insane maniac of some sort. That would explain the odd way the body had been dealt with after the murder. The only thing that kept coming up was one of the oldest known motives, greed. And who had the most to gain from Raoul's death? Father Adelard Delorme. Follow the money. Follow the money, yeah. Oftentimes, that's where uh, it will point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really dig that La Joie looked at all these other options and wasn't just, yes, okay, so here's all this evidence pointing toward this one person, this Catholic priest, Father Adelard Delorme. Let's ensure that we follow some other paths as well and rule out some other options before he didn't just look like Poirot. Yeah. He acted like Poirot. Exactly. Uh, have you seen the Poirot shows? Like, yes. Yeah. Justin and I love watching because we Hercule. <laughs> and we always go dinner party reveal because it was always sort of like a dinner party reveal. I doubt there was a dinner party <laughs> reveal in this case, but uh but yeah. I love a good dinner party reveal. Oh, for sure. That that so just dr- makes it fun. So dramatic. But yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if La Joie might have been Agatha Christie's inspiration for Poirot. Maybe. Isn't that interesting? Like, it could have been. Yeah. Uh, because he does look like uh, how Poirot is portrayed. Or maybe that's where What's-Her-Name got Inspector Gamache from. Could be. Yeah. Could be. There's a lot of really... Interesting. Have you ever read the Inspector Gamache novels? No, I haven't. Really good. I should probably do that. Yeah. I should read something. Instead of writing. (laughs) And reading your own book. Well, I've done enough of that. (laughs) Among Raoul's papers, Le Joie found the dead man's will. It named Father Adelard Delorme as the executor and inheritor of the bulk of Raoul's considerable estate, the rest, a small amount each, going to his four sisters. Father Delorme had bought the twenty-five caliber revolver he'd given to La Joie only days before the murder. As well, only seven days before Raoul's death, 
Delorme had taken out a $25,000 life insurance policy on his younger brother, again making himself the sole beneficiary in the event of Raoul's death. The last person other than Father Delorme to see Raoul on January 6th, the day of the murder, was A. Trudeau, a restaurant keeper. Raoul, not wearing the overcoat he was later found wearing, had come into the establishment around noon to buy a package of pipe tobacco. That left only the priest as the last person to have seen young Raoul, but they needed more evidence. Lajoie and his men went back to 190 St. Hubert Street to see if they could gather more clues. The case was so high profile, even Chief Lepage tagged along to help. They focused on the garage. As Father Delorme led the officers to the garage, he said, No one can come in and out of here without my permission. End quote. Inside the car, they found two stained cushions on the seat. There were stained bed coverlets in the garage lying on a valise. Boxes with hen feathers glued onto them were also found in the car. Father Delorme, who'd been hovering and watching the search, said, quote, As for the feathers, I have carried live hens for a friend with whom I had gone to the country. And as for the coverlets, they are mine and were left to me by my parents. I have occasionally used them in place of a rug in my car and did so on my last trip with Raoul. End quote. They also looked at the cellar one more time, and while they were there, Father Delorme seemed agitated. He told them, as he had before, nothing could have happened there without the neighbors overhearing. They took the evidence back to the office and had legal medical expert and analyst Dr. Wilfred DeRome go over the items. DeRome was the head of the Forensic Research Laboratory in Montreal at the time. He would become a key figure in the solving of this case. After a day of analysis, Jerome determined the stains on the items recovered from 190 St. Hubert Street were human blood. Lajoie and the other officers took Dr. Jerome with them to Delorme's house again so he could have a closer look at things around the residence. Lajoie wrote that Dr. Jerome, quote, made a few notations and requested us to carry away the back seat and two small front seats. The cellar was once more inspected and I found a bit of string, similar to the one that bound the victim's head. I must say here that on January 9th, I found two similar bits of string on the sidewalk a few feet away from the priest's house. On our way out, Father Delorme remarked, quote, Every day you take something away from here, eventually you'll take me away. End quote. The following day, the car seats showed stains of human blood as well, which had been washed. There was also a soap stain absolutely similar to the ones on the quilt in which the head of the victim had been wrapped. The coverlets had oil stains that matched the ones in which Raoul's head was wrapped when he'd been found. The stitching on the quilts and coverlets, Dr. Jerome discovered, were sewn by the same hand. I love how thorough Dr. Jerome is in investigating this crime. Mm. Like... Looking at the stitching that these two qu these two quilts and coverlets and that kind of thing, like, okay, so here are the same the same number of stitches per inch and all that yeah. kind of stuff, and the style is very very the same. And it, it's sort of like cybercrime these days with the the digital thumbprint of like a coder. If somebody's broken yeah. in, you can figure out sort of who. Did. My husband mm -hmm. is a developer, right? Right. And he has his own style. It's like a signature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just and it's, it's a similar thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, my great grandmother 
quilted as well, and mm. I I have one of her quilts, and I have seen others, and you can tell that they are. Did you ever go to a quilting bee? I have never been to a quilting bee. My great grandmother took me to a quilting bee. Oh, that sounds like really nice, actually. Well, we, you know, it was seventies, right? It's mm -hmm. not far, you know, seventies rural southwestern Ontario. Yeah, there's still like a lot of old school stuff happening. Mm -hmm. So I've gone to a barn raising. Oh, where, where the community wow. gets together to put the barn up, a quilting bee. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Dr. Jerome also looked at the bullets that had been recovered from Raul's skull. He found that the evidentiary bullets matched those that had been test-fired from Father Delorme's revolver. The higher-ups, who'd been reticent to arrest a priest for murder, could no longer ignore the evidence against Father Delorme. The Abbey's arrest was ordered. Somehow, a reporter for La Presse got wind of the impending arrest and went to Father Delorme's house to ask him what he thought about that. The priest was acting bizarrely. You are crazy, said the priest. Don't you know I wear a cassock? This is Bibby's protection. Moreover, and he pointed to an imaginary revolver, let them come and arrest me. I had one in my car, a gun, but I have another one here. I had four private detectives who did good work for me. They have organized meetings in different parts of the city where I secretly saw our good Canadians. I spoke to them, we shook hands on it, and they are convinced that I am not a murderer. End quote. Lajoie arrested Father Delorme on February 14, 1922, Valentine's Day and the priest was charged with murder in Raoul's death and held at the Montreal jail to await his trial. Word of a priest being charged with murder was big news, and quickly the story made its way around the globe. The tale of a murderous priest was front-page news in many places. Delorme was acting oddly in prison. He seemed to be more concerned with how he'd look in the courtroom for his upcoming trial than what he was being accused of, and he ranted of making hours-long speeches that would prove his innocence. From John Glatt's book, For I Have Sinned, quote, The prison doctor, Dr. Emmanuel Benoit, believed Father Delorme to be a psychotic with a little hold on reality. When his murder trial began on June 1, 1922, his lawyer advised Father Delorme to make a preliminary plea of insanity as a technicality against having to answer the murder charge, which could send him to the gallows if he was convicted. In a special hearing to determine the priest's sanity, a jury heard how the last three generations of Father Delorme's family had been plagued by insanity. His mother had died in a mental asylum, and grandparents on both sides of his family had suffered mental illness. His two half-sisters, Lily and Florence, had intellectual disabilities, and no fewer than 14 of his close relatives had been diagnosed with mental problems. End quote. Sure enough, after the testimony of several alienists, both for the Crown and the defense, Father Delorme was found to be insane and unable to face the charges against him. He was ordered to be held at a mental hospital until he was determined mentally fit to stand trial. It took a year in the hospital until the priest was determined well enough to face the music. So, Matthew. You're faking it. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Totally faking it. Totally? This, yeah, this guy, well, I think he has a mental problem in that he's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. And the more I do these shows with you, yeah, the more I realize they're often narcissists. Yes. Right? Yep. And um, which is a mental illness, but it's not 
like you didn't know what you're doing. Right. Right. I had someone come after me at some point uh, about when I was saying that narcissists are someone you should avoid. Yes, you should. Yeah. And, and people have come after me for that saying I'm not being compassionate. I, well, a narcissist isn't going to be compassionate with you. I'd suggest the people saying that to your narcissist. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, go hang out with your narcissist buddies. If you if you want to do that, if you want to have a narcissist, no, narcissist in your life. I've, I've had a few and they just make me run. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I had uh, a friend uh, a long time ago who um, I thought had my best interests at heart. Yeah. I've had quite a few of those, but, um, this one in particular, um, it was when I was a teenager and it's kind of the first one that I think I had in my life. Yeah. And he made me want to, um, compromise my own way of thinking about myself to please him. Of course. You know, like he, he told me, well, you're a good friend but you're not my best friend. <laughs> he would say things like that, like to make me psychologically want to compete with that other piece, that other person mm. for his approval. Yeah. There was all kinds of little insidious, yeah. ugly things yeah, I'm, that that person I just, did. I, I'm 51 years old. I don't have time for that shit. No, not anymore. No. Juries were unable to reach a conclusion to whether the priest was guilty in the first two of Father DeLorme's three murder trials. The Crown had pulled out all the stops to convict the priest. There was a mountain of evidence against him. Ballistic evidence was a newer science during the first quarter of the 20th century, but they used it quite effectively here. Crown expert witnesses used wooden models to show how the grooves on the bullets matched DeLorme's gun. A scale model of 190 St. Hubert Street, which came apart for easy viewing, was constructed and used by Le Joie as a visual tool to help the juries understand the layout of that residence. From virtualmuseum.ca, Dr. Jerome was summoned to testify as a ballistics expert. He explained the technique known as bullet rolling, which he had learned in Paris. The technique consists in rolling a bullet on carbon paper or foil paper, thereby leaving an imprint of the defects and grooves. The paper is then photographed with the help of an oblique projection of very intense light, producing a photograph that highlights clearly all the characteristics of the bullet. During the third trial, Dr. Jerome experimented with a new method of ballistics analysis by pouring a sulfur-based mixture into the barrel, which he removed after it had hardened he obtained a faithful reproduction of the grooves inside the barrel, end quote. On All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, 1921, after closing arguments, the jury was sent to make their determination as to Father DeLorme's guilt. According to John Glatt's book, For I Have Sinned, before sending them away, quote, Judge Auguste Maurice Tessier, who appeared to believe DeLorme was guilty, addressed the jury. To say that the accused is a priest is to insinuate that men are not equal before the law, he began. When a man is guilty, he must be condemned, whether he is rich, poor, weak, strong, a priest, a judge, a financier, or a beggar, end quote. People around the world were following the story. Thousands of Montrealers waited outside for the verdict. The jury came back with a decision after three hours and 40 minutes of deliberation. Despite the evidence that everyone else thought was overwhelming, the verdict of the jury was not guilty. The jury had acquitted Father DeLorme. 
he was free to go. There would be no more trials. No one else was ever charged for Raoul Delorme's murder. According to Max Haynes, on his way out of the courtroom, Father Delorme made a brief statement. He said, I knew I would be freed because I'm innocent. I hold no grudge against any person who worked against me in the case. I forgive all. End quote. From John Glatz, For I Have Sinned. Quote, now an embarrassment to the Catholic Church, the Archbishop of Montreal banished Delorme to live quietly in what was then called the Institute for the Deaf and Dumb in the St. Lawrence District, where he collapsed and died on January 19, 1942. Many speculate that the jury, who were all Catholic, could not bring themselves to believe a priest was guilty of murder, especially since at the time such a verdict would have resulted in only one possible sentence, a trip to the gallows for hanging. Perhaps having the execution of a man of God on their conscience was not something they wanted to chance having to explain to St. Peter at the pearly gates. Perhaps it was at those same pearly gates that Delorme finally received justice, if you believe in those things. This story did bring to mind a certain biblical tale early on in the Old Testament in which Cain kills his brother Abel and then lies about it. Genesis chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 go. Quote, the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 183, Sins of the Father, the Delorme Affair. What are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? <laughs> I love that you're quoting Genesis on your show. Right. <laughs> and not the band. <laughs> yeah. It, invisible Touch. Would we go I, with I, it? I, oh, and what was their biggest song, Genesis? Song? Oh, gosh. Um, I would, Invisible Touch was big. Okay. Uh, Abacab, uh, Follow Me, Follow You. Okay. Um, I mean... I was never a big fan. They had some massive hits. That's Phil Collins, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And Mike Rutherford. And formerly uh, Peter Gabriel as well. Was Peter Gabriel in Genesis? Yes, he was in Genesis until I think the album Duke. Okay. Yeah. There's quite a good big history. So what are your thoughts on Father DeLorme? Did he do it? Yes. Okay. So he did it. We both agree that this 100%. guy 100% murdered his brother to get the money. 100% resented that his father had left the money to his brother Raul, shot him in the head six times, felt crappy about it, wrapped his head up, and took his brother out and placed him in the cold uh, near a shed. I mean, it just goes to show that like the father didn't give him the money in the first place. Right. And he was the eldest son. Like That was almost unheard of back then. Yeah. The eldest son got the money. Well, I mentioned in the script that yeah. um, he had been completely written out. Yeah, and then somebody talked him into giving Yeah, him because they thought there'd be such scandal. A little bit. But, you know, the guy did it. And it's yeah, this is one of the reasons why I don't like the death penalty. Yeah. Because... As the only option. Yeah. Well, I don't like it as an option at all. Right. Um, but as the only option, you know, like you have a bunch of Catholics on... I almost said the panel like it's a game show on the, on let's kill someone wheel of fortune wheel of death um on the what are they called the jury the jury yeah. 
Oh my God! Impanel, they you do impanel a jury. Okay, a jury. So, so on they are, the panel, yeah, don't want this guy to die mm-hmm. because hey, hanging a priest maybe not good for them for the long term, and so the guy got off scot free. Yep, right. He didn't really get off scot free because the church then shunned him and forced him to live in a in a home for the infirm. After that. Well, that's what the church does. Somebody does a bad thing, you just keep moving them around. Right. Yeah. Here, go. No, never mind. Yeah. Yeah, we get, we can get very wound up about that. Yeah. So what do you think, like, how do you think Quebecers treated Delorme after that? There's not a lot of sort of information about him post yeah. being, being free. I think outside of Quebec, for sure, people looked at this as a real miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And probably a lot of people inside Quebec felt the same way. Like, what the hell? This guy was totally guilty and we've tried him three times and ultimately find him, uh, acquit him, not innocent, not guilty is different from innocent. Mm. Um, What the heck? How do you, uh, if you're a jurist, how do you... How do you sleep at night letting this guy go who murdered his brother for cash? Yeah, you know, if I was on a jury, Justin and I were talking about this the other day. Mm-hmm. If I was on a jury, I guess in the United States I was watching, uh, if if um, Law and Order is actually kind of real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, or was it Bull? One of the other, one of the two. And they're asking the jury, you know, would you be willing to send somebody to death? Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd never be on a jury because I'd say, no, I will never do it. Right. Right. So if I was a jurist, like, mm. yeah, he might have, if that was the only thing I could vote for, I would, I would vote no, because I'm, it, I can't kill people. Right. And I don't think everybody has this, has the stomach for it or the conscience or a conscience that will let them do that. Yeah. Um, not everybody believes in Old Testament justice. Oh, excuse the pun. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. That's that whole eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. Um, it is the law. It is the way that things are done in some places. It's interesting that a lot of countries have moved away from the death penalty. I think uh, I'm pretty sure the US and Japan are the only G8, G20 countries that have it. Right. Maybe... Oh, no, I might. Well, I'm definitely wrong because China as well and Russia. I don't know if Russia actually has a death penalty. penalty? I don't know. Or people are put to death in Russia. I don't know if there's an actual official death penalty. I think it's summary execution. Right, exactly. Like uh, put the bullet in back of Andre Chikatilo's head. Yeah, or put a little bit of... uh, uh, biological weapon in your tea at uh, Yosushi in London. Yeah. Why am I glowing all of a sudden yeah. and don't feel well? Yeah, exactly. That's what happens. Um, so yeah, interesting story. It was a fun one to tell. Mm. And the end of it, what it, I don't know why, but it really bothers me. <laughs> it really bothers. I mean, it was a long time ago, 19. almost 100 years ago that this happened. Oh yeah, this is like 1922, wasn't it? Right. So it's, God, it's almost 100 years, years ago. ago. So. Feels like it was just yesterday. Does it? Were you around in 1922? Yeah. Maybe in another incarnation you were. Uh, I, I wear my immortality well, don't I? Yes. <laughs> 
Matthew and I are the Highlander. There can be only one. When, when I'm in a store and they go, okay, your change is 1654. Mm-hmm. I go, oh, that's a good year. But, that was a great year. And somebody once, that's where I got the line. Somebody laughed and looked at me and they, they literally went, you wear your immortality well. Oh, <laughs> so I've been funny. using it ever since. Oh dear. Oh dear. All right. I guess it's time for us to move on to voicemails. You know what? If you want to leave us one, you can do so at one 327 5786 or 1-877-D-A-R-K-P-T-N. If you're stumped for what to chat about, just tell us a quick story. Try and keep it under two minutes, and often the best ones have been written out beforehand. We'd love to hear from you anyway, even if it's just to say hi and tell us to go shit in our ass. <laughs> so let's do this. Hi, guys. This is Sarah calling from Dawson City, Yukon, traditional Chandek Kitchen Territory. And I'm just calling to say I really love you guys. Thanks for everything you do. I don't miss your old co-host at all. Matt, you're doing a terrific job. Um, Love listening to you guys every week. And not going to lie, Mike Brown, your voice puts me to sleep many nights. (laughs) How morbid, but here we are. Thanks for everything you do. Love you guys. Go shit in the hat. Go poop in your toque. Sorry for leaving you three voicemails. I think this one's the one, though. Love you. Wow. I love that. I think this one's the one. And I love that Sarah's calling from the Yukon. I think that's our first Yukon caller. Dawson City. Yeah, so, wow. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much. Yeah, that, Mike, Mike's, uh, when I, before I was co-hosting, I would always fall asleep during the show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't I don't mind lulling people to sleep as long as maybe they will actually listen to the episode at some, yeah. some point. I'd, I put a lot of work into I'd this rewind, show. I'd rewind. I'd some, rewind. Some nights it'd take me like three nights to hear the whole show. Oh. I, I'd figure out where I fell asleep and play it again, right? Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that's what people are doing. <laughs> I'm hoping it's not just like, hi, it's Mike's ASMR. Yeah, exactly. Put Matthew to sleep. This one looks like it comes to us from Manitoba. 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 Hey, guys. This is, I'm going to not use my real name. I'm going to call myself Megan from Sundry, Alberta. I uh, just wanted to call and leave a voicemail, let you guys know uh, how much I enjoy your show. I just finished my last night shift here, and... My favorite thing to do on a night shift was drive around and listen to your podcast. Uh, I just wanted to say that, Matthew, you have a great voice. I know you've heard that like a thousand times, so don't let your head blow up. Um, (laughs) And, Mike, I really, 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 really think you are a talented individual. Um, I appreciate the episodes you have done. I won't exactly say what I do, but I'm sure you can figure it out. I am involved in kind of the criminal justice law area of the world and um yeah it's uh you do a wonderful job portraying cases and talking about them and just i don't know representing the victims too so just wanted to say thanks guys love your podcast take a nice big steamy one in your hat bye now (laughs) i love it when cops call in (laughs) 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 <laughs> Thanks, fake Megan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, obviously, yeah, we understand you can't tell us who yeah. you are and what you're doing or where you are or anything like that. But uh, You know, I have to ask my cousin if she listens to the show. Mm-hmm. I know a she's few police a, she's officers. A, she's a policewoman as well. Yeah. 
Um, and that to me, that is is kind of a really good validation of what we do. It's not just people who are interested in murder porn mm. and are like listening for the gore and the yeah you don't, you don't get that here no it, it's people who are interested in criminal justice and and storytelling yes who come to us and, and bad jokes and bad dad jokes bad dad jokes. although neither of us are dads i'm the dad of cats and I'm, you're the dad of i'm the dad of dog dad of dog but i mean yeah interesting thank you megan thank you megan whoever you actually are Constable Meg, Megan, or maybe Corporal, or even Sergeant. I don't know. Detective. Detective. Oh, hey, wow. She could work for CSIS. She could be any number of things. Oh, she could be like a military police officer, too. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of options. I love when there's a little mystery. I think she's a pilot as well. Well, there you go. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> Next one comes to us from somewhere in the excited states of America. Hello, Mike and Matthew and Steve. This is Kathy Smith AC in Oregon. And earlier this week, I had, well, maybe last week, whenever, I had posted a question um, about a friend and got lots of wonderful answers and support. And I just wanted to say thank you to the whole community. And I'm going to cry if I don't stop. Um, but thank you all. I appreciate it. Um, my friend is in good hands now. And I love you all. So have a good week. And uh, go defecate in someone else's head covering. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy. We love you too. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm really glad that... Uh, we won't get into why she was posting in the umber yard, but uh, her friend had a problem that some of us have had, and um, we get to respond and help. Yeah, in a big way, in a, in a nice way, and that's one of the things that I'm proud of in that group. Even though the group of ten thousand was deleted by Facebook for some bizarre reason that we're not yet on, not yet sure what happened. Um, this new group that's developed almost three thousand already is really tight and it's full of a lot of the same people who were so kind in the last one. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we could, uh, we could give our assistance in any way. And thank you to Kathy for being such a big supporter of the show. Yeah. You're always around in the umber yard and, uh, our other groups. So we really appreciate you. It's always nice to see Kathy. Okay. Well, some of you know that last week was my birthday and somebody apparently wanted to wish me a happy birthday. Matthew did it a bunch of times <laughs> in ways that I was just like, I'm just kind of hoping this day passes and nobody I would, notices. I wasn't going to let it pass. Yeah, it didn't pass that way. Good. Well, it was nice to have. You get should some... be celebrated, Mike. Well, yeah, I guess so. But this person called and celebrated. Yay. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mike. Happy birthday to you. Go shit in your head. Much love from Kathy from Oregon. Bye. 
<laughs> well, there you go. I love that. Go shit in your head. Go shit in your That's head. That's lovely. Thank you. Well, yeah. And I guess that was Kathy again calling. <laughs> was that a Kathy again? <laughs> Telling me to go shit in my ass. That's so. lovely. Kathy twice. Yes, exactly. So there What's you go. better than Kathy? Kathy twice. Kathy twice. But uh, yeah. So it was my birthday and I'm glad it's over. I'm 52. The number of uh, the cards beast. you get in a deck of cards. Oh, I thought you say the number of the beast. No, 52, the number of the beast. Oh, woe to you, O <laughs> earth and sea, for the devil sends the beast with wrath, for he knows the time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. His number is 666. Yeah, I just love that Iron Maiden song. I used, we got high at my buddy Steve's my brother place. Loves that listen to that. Yeah, I did too. Anyway, that's it for voicemails. Again, if you want to leave us one, you can do so at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N P T N P T N. Now on to Patreon and donut money shout outs. We're gonna shout at people. Yay! Yeah. So first up. We have someone from a place we're not sure where they live, but her name is a- her name is Ashley Lobsinger. Ashley Lobsinger. Hello, Ashley. And where on earth does our friend Ashley live, Matthew? I think she lives in Louisiana. Louisiana? Yeah. Does she work in some barbecue place in Louisiana? No, she's a bridge and lock tender. What the heck is that? Uh, Mississippi River Delta. Okay. I could see the Mississippi from my hotel. River control system. Number of locks. Oh, okay. She manages the locks. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, good for her. Ashley, somebody's got to do that. Absolutely. I like the gumbo. I like to eat the gumbo in uh, I've never been to Louisiana. Did I ever tell you the story that uh, Tyler from Minds of Madness and I went out for lunch in Louisiana? We went to one of the buffets in the hotels in New Orleans. I hate buffets. Well, it was okay. The buffet was good. Everything I mean, that's supposed to be hot is cold, and everything that's supposed to be cold is warm. Well, anyway. Okay, go on. So <laughs> we went out to the buffet, and Tyler needed to go to the washroom, and they they seated me. And it was Pride Week while we were there. Mm-hmm. And so they said, um, where would you and your husband like to sit? Oh. And I said, oh, we'll sit just over here. You know, blah, blah, blah. There's like a, a nice bit of seating here by the window. Also, we'll sit there if you like. And she was like, yep. And when he comes back, just let him know that uh, I'll be right back to, to get your drink drink orders. And so when, when Tyler came back, I said, we're, we're married. And he's like, what? And I said, yeah, you're my <laughs> podcast husband. So every time we, Tyler from Minds of Madness and I have a conversation, we, we're calling each other hubby Aww, and stuff like that. How sweet. Yeah, he's my hubby. I had to tell a waitress today that you aren't my husband. Yes, you did. Because <laughs> you were talking about your husband, and then she looked at me, and he's... I'm like, yeah, no, not him. Not... <laughs> yeah, please, because... dear God. No, oh, God. <laughs> now I feel embarrassed. Oh, please. But anyway. You know, I'm just teasing. So, thank you, Ashley Lobsinger. Here's one. From Princeton, Ontario, Virginia Jansen. Virginia. Thank you so much, Virginia. 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 What does Virginia Jansen do there in Princeton, Ontario? 
Are you familiar with where Princeton is? I'm trying to think of where it is. Hmm. I don't know. It sounds like it's somewhere other than Toronto, so. <laughs> she, she is a wind turbine service technician. Oh, that's probably a good job. Because there's a lot of wind turbines in Ontario now. Yeah, you can't be afraid of heights, though, if you're servicing wind turbines. 200 feet in the air. Yeah. Uh, I remember when they built them in Nova Scotia around my hometown. Um, Don't you think they're ugly? They are. They kind of stand they spot out. The, like I went to, hadn't been driving through parts of Ontario for a long time, went a couple of years ago. Yeah. And all the farms that used to be farmland, there's these big wind turbines. And I'm like, I get it, but yeah. they're really a blight. Yeah. Yeah. My dad took me up to where the wind turbine is outside of Bridgewater, and yeah. uh, I got to hear one. Have mm. you ever heard a wind turbine moving? It's interesting. It's like this eerie sort of woof, woof <laughs> as the as it goes by. Yeah, it's very very weird sound. But well, thank you for thank you to Virginia for servicing the wind turbines there near Princeton. Someone's got to do it, like we always say. Yeah. Next up. From Welland, Ontario, Samantha Warren. I know where that is. You do know where Welland is. So yeah. where is Welland? In Ontario. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> what does Samantha Warren do there in Welland? Crime scene cleaner. Oh, that's got to be a rough job. Can I, you imagine that's what you do for a living? I have thought about, you know, um, I, I'm not certain if there's a company here in Vancouver that there does it. Be. There has to be. Yeah. But I don't, I don't ever see it advertised, but what horrific things you must see. There was a, there was a podcast that was by crime scene cleaners. Um, I can't remember what it's called right off the top of my head, but um, it was interesting to hear about certain crime scenes because they would talk about, here's what we had to clean up and then this is what, yeah. So that, that's a little rough, but. But anyway, she's a very good crime scene cleaner. Uh, did she learn out of necessity, i.e. perhaps had to? No, I, she just, um, it was her calling. There you go. Yeah. Every, like like Father DeLorme's calling. Yes, she's a crime scene calling. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Next up we have Lisa Marshall, and Lisa is from Ojai, California. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> it's spelled O-J-I-A, or O-J-A-I. So, oh, hi. Oh, hi. And what does Lisa Marshall do there in the big California? I love California so much. Do you? I do. I really, really do. It's like a, it's like a warmer British Columbia, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> She's a gum buster. What is a gum buster? What does a gum buster do? She has that power spray thing. She takes it off sidewalks. Oh. Like, you know, you know, in Singapore, they wouldn't sell gum for years mm-hmm. because they didn't want people spitting it on the street. Oh, wow. Yeah. And actually, it's a big crime to spit gum on the street in Singapore. Yeah. Like. It gets punishable by death. Is it death? I think it's caning. I think you'll get caned. Oh, let's go <laughs> spit some gum on the floor. Matthew needs a spanking. Oh, no. Cane and Abel. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lisa Marshall. Wow. Callbacks all the time into this show. Next, we have Irene Vidi Duel. And that is Irene Briand, our friend Irene. Hello, Irene. Back again. And she's from Lethbridge, Alberta. We've 
given Irene jobs before, but I think she switches jobs a lot. So our friend Irene, what the heck are you doing I now? think I think in reality she's a nuclear missile operator. Really? Yeah. And you know, there's a big one down there in the bridge. A big nuclear missile? Silo, yeah. Um, there actually people thought, oh, well, Canada didn't have any nuclear weapons on our soil. I, That's not I, true. Irene looks after them. That's right. So there you go. Someone's got to do that. I and mean, she carries a nuclear football with her all the time. I had, I worked with a guy who was a bit of a crazy person and he had been in the U.S. Navy and claimed that he was on a submarine and that he at some point carried the second nuclear football. Whatever. Right. I thought he was full of complete doo-doo, but you know, you don't say that to the person who's like, I think you're full of shit. Mm -hmm. You just like, let them tell you the story. There's no point in actually... Sometimes when somebody is telling a lie that that's, that's that massive, it could be true. Mm. Or they could probably snap and kill you if you're... <laughs> One or the other. Right? Crazy. What's the point in calling somebody on that stuff? Thank you, Irene. Thanks, Irene. For protecting us. Exactly. Next, next we have Spence Chartier. Spence Chartier. And what do you think... Well, A, where does Spence live? And... B, what does Spence do? He lives in um, Paul's Valley, Oklahoma. What is that? Where is that? Obviously a very In the Oklahoma. With tornadoes, etc. He's et an action figure museum curator. There's an action figure museum in uh -huh. that part of Oklahoma. Yeah. Okay. And he curates. Is there, are there G.I. Joes there? There are some G.I. Joes. Okay. And, and he has some G.I. Janes. G.I. Jane. Yeah. And Stretch Armstrong. Love Stretch Armstrong, Big Jim. Bionic Man with the little eye thing. That's right. That's and Oscar Goldman was was the uh, was the boss of the OSS, I think it was, or okay. the OSA. And Jamie Summers, the bionic woman. Yeah, and uh, Charlie's Angels. Oh, Charlie's Angels. There you go. Matthew and I are dating ourselves very heavily here as being grown up in the 70s, 70s kids. I saw Lee Majors on the street here in Vancouver one time. Really? On Burrard Street. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he was the bionic man, $6 million man. Um, and he was walking toward me and I thought, wow, A, he's very old now. Mm. And B, he has bad knees. So his bionic legs probably need replacing. And did you? I should have done. When he walked past Oh, him. he probably would have punched me in the face. Probably. He looked grompy. He yeah, looked he was older. Grumpy. You could take him. Well, anyway, thank you, Spence. For thank you, Spence. Taking care of those action figures. And thanks for Patreoning. Yes, exactly. Next, we have Rebecca. Just simply Rebecca. Like Cher and Gaga, we have Rebecca. Is that with two Ks or with a C? It's two with two Cs. Okay. Um, however, uh, Rebecca doesn't tell us where she lives or what she does. No? Nope. Not at all. She lives in Vermont. Okay. Vermont with Martha Stewart. You know, you, do you want to hear something really funny? Sure. I don't know why, but whenever I heard the term Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. You thought about Martha Stewart. I thought, I thought Martha, it was Martha Stewart's Vineyard. <laughs> well, I have actually, when I heard Martha's Vineyard, I thought it would be interesting if Martha Stewart lived in Martha's Vineyard. I thought literally Martha Stewart had a huge vineyard that lots of people visited. <laughs> oh, no. So... Rebecca lives in Vermont, probably Martha's Vineyard. 
Is Ice that... Cream Factory Tour Guide. That's wow. what she does. That's great. Because you know Ben and Jerry's is in Vermont. I would probably weigh 4,000 pounds. Yeah, Waterbury, Vermont. I would... I would not be a thin man if I was uh, giving tours of an ice cream plant every day. And taste this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm, cookie dough. <laughs> Excuse me, you folks move on. I'm just going to be here over the cookie dough vat. Too Is that your favorite? Um, that or something with peanut butter in it. Okay. I love peanut butter. Love me some chocolate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like pralines and cream. Oh, that's nice too. Mm -hmm. I also really, really dig... Um, Pistachio ice cream, but Pistachio. I don't see it a lot in stores no. here. I think that's a more more American thing than I think it's more East than West Coast. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. They had Nanaimo bar ice cream that I've tried. Mm -hmm. It was awful. Yeah, sounds gross. Yeah, it was gritty. It had like a really sort of gritty texture. Is there any poutine ice cream? No. That'd be interesting. <laughs> I, can't, I I don't know if I would like the taste of poutine. I I like my ice cream sweet, not savory. So, because poutine ice cream would be a little savory, okay. unless you can say like uh, the fries are something else. Yeah, the fries are fries are like sticks of peanut butter, and the and the gravy is um, caramel. Caramel, yeah. That and would then, be yummy. Yeah, and then uh, what's the cheese? The cheese would be marshmallows. <laughs> Oh my gosh. We've just invented poutine ice cream, Matthew. Poutine ice cream. We should uh, trademark that. Done. Trademarked 2021 by Michael Brown and Matthew Stockton. <laughs> so there you go. Nobody else can copy that now because we, we said those We claimed things. it. We claimed it. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, for, Rebecca. For doing what you do. Next we have from Cobble Hill, British Columbia, Catherine Schneider. Thank you, Catherine, for your patronage. And what does Catherine do there in Cobble Hill? She's a cobbler. Oh, well, that would make sense. You know Daniel Day-Lewis is a cobbler, right? Stop. Yes, he went to cobbler school to learn to become a shoemaker. Does he only make left... <laughs> There's only, he only makes the left shoe... My left well, foot. Well, was the left foot the, was the one without a shoe on it, though, wasn't it? I know. Because didn't he use that to communicate? I can't Maybe. remember that movie. It doesn't take movie. away from the fun of that joke, though. <laughs> yes, it does, make, it does make for a good... Uh, oh, my. Daniel Day-Lewis and his left foot cobbling. Well, you thank know. Thank you. Thank you so much, thank Catherine. You, Catherine. Yeah. Um, it, there in Cobble Hill, British Columbia. I don't know where Cobble Hill is. It's got to be somewhere. Cobbly. Is there cobblestones in Kabul? Oh, my God. Are you sure it's not Kabul? It's Kabul. <laughs> Don't want to <laughs> be there right now. She lives in Kabul. Yeah, things have gone a little sideways there again. But, you know, such is life. Uh, okay. We did get some donut money this week. And it is from Aiden Irvine. And Aiden says... Enjoy some coffee and donuts. I had this money in my PayPal. Not sure how to use it. I figured you guys could use it. I think Matthew is doing a fine job as co-host and hope he stays around for a while. I hope you and Matthew can guess my job. I'm from the Comox Valley, by the way. I'll send some donut money soon. Keep doing what you're doing. I wish you guys a good day and do hope to see you around the valley. I don't normally say it, but go poop in your toque. Enjoy. <laughs> 
I hope I didn't ramble too much. Aiden. I think Aiden's another person wearing chaps. Oh. But he's a horticultural therapist. Yeah. Yeah. A horticultural therapist. Uh, yeah. Feel better mentally, physically, emotionally through gardens. Well, there you go. That's actually a good thing. Our friend Art gave me a plant. A yeah. house plant. Okay. And I have been taken care of, successfully taken care wow. of a house plant. It's thriving. Wow. I am learning how to take care of something that doesn't meow or bark when it's hungry or <laughs> thirsty. Um, so it's it's quite nice. It's about what I've learned, because I now have the peasant's balcony I filled with plants, mm -hmm. is uh, just a system. Like every two days I water them. There you go. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get like a, a little, uh, a laminating machine and make myself, uh, some, a chore list. Okay. So I can remember oh to God. do chores cause, uh, I tend to forget stuff. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for Patreon and Donut Money donors. Thank you to all our donors past and present for your generosity. It's actually so hot in here, I could water your plants with my sweat. I know, I'm feeling sweaty too. <laughs> your generosity helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron at, of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. My book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order. I just finished the audiobook, so that is definitely done. You can order it via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Take your time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram, please. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg, not a bad apple. A tout à l'heure. A tout à l'heure, mm. as they say. Guten tag. Goodbye. And good night. Sayonara. Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.